Welcome to episode 49 of Telepractice Today with Kim Dutro-Allen and Dr. Todd Houston. Hey, welcome to another episode. Um, this week, we're going to do our little intro a little bit different. <laughs> and we have thought of this idea of getting to know our guests a little bit more um, on a personal level, too, and as well as a professional level. And so we wanted to do these questions. Todd, how about you explain where you got these questions <laughs> from and how we're going to use them? Well, this is sort of an adapted Proust um questionnaire. It was, if anyone's watched the television show uh, Inside the Actor Studio, I think it's only on reruns now, but it was a great show. And so James Lipton was the guy who's the faculty member at the Actor Studio, and he would bring these, you know, big famous actors on and they would interview them. And then at the end, he had these questions. And it was just uh, meant to be sort of a uh, quick answer, you know, tell me the first thing that comes to mind when I ask you this question. And uh, it, it, you know, happened pretty quickly. And then uh, once he went through that, he turned uh, the actor over to the students and the audience and the students could ask questions as well. And so this is sort of an adapted questionnaire based on what they were doing. So it's it's very much a borrowed um, questionnaire that's been adapted and and sort of updated to fit uh, where we are now. And so it's just a way to get to know people a little bit more and a little bit different way, and maybe a little more on a personal level. Should we jump in and do the yes. questionnaire? Yes. So we're going to do it since we're going to make our guests do it. <laughs> we'll do it first. Okay, here goes. You want me to ask you the first one? So what's the most used app on your phone? Um, Instagram. Instagram. Yep. Uh, I would probably have to say, if I'm honest, uh, my most used app is probably going to be Outlook. (laughs) (laughs) Emails. Uh, Just trying to keep up with uh, what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, The next question is, what was the last TV series you streamed? Ooh, my sister-in-law just got me hooked on a show called The Circle that's on Instagram. It's like trashy reality TV at its finest. (laughs) (laughs) And it's people, it's kind of like Big Brother. They're isolated um, from the rest of the world, but they're also isolated from each other and can only interact through social media. And then they decide based on their interactions through social media who to vote off every week. So. It's interesting. Right. Yeah, I, I think I read something about that one. I think it's been renewed. It's going to come back. Yep. Yep. I think again. they just started the second season. Yeah. Awesome. Um, my wife and I try to find sort of mystery drama shows that uh, on Netflix or Amazon Prime. And uh, the last one we watched, we've, just, we've been watching The Equalizer on CBS. <laughs> Uh, that's not a, a big one, but um, on Netflix, uh, she got into um, Bridgerton. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I haven't seen it yet. I've heard all the hype about it. I haven't yeah, seen it yet. She got into that. So I would. I ended up 
you know, watching parts of that here and there, but uh, I can see where it would appeal to, to what she likes. <laughs> uh, very good looking people, very good looking men on there. So yep. she loved it. Um, what's your favorite book or what's, what's a book that you've been reading recently? Um, recently I have gotten very into audiobooks cause it's about the only way that I can multitask and get a mm-hmm. through a book. I just read, um, the Dutch house and it was oh. narrated by Tom Hanks, which made it oh, extra nice. good. I felt like it was, it was an interesting book. It was, um, I think it would make a great, it would have to be a whole series because there was a lot in there instead of a movie. Mm-hmm. I think it would make a great kind of that like family drama kind of show. It was really good. How about awesome. you? Yeah, I, well, I, for Christmas, um, my kids usually buy me books and I've, uh, they bought me um, uh, President Obama's book that he just published. And I forget the title of it, darn it. Uh, but it was the one he just wrote about his presidency. And it was released back in the fall. So I've been reading that. So it's it's very good and offers some uh, insights into behind the scenes, you know, as president, you know, and yeah. and, and certain things that came up uh, and how he approached, you know, solving the problems and things like that. And it's, it's very interesting. Um, what's your favorite genre of music? Oh, I like just about anything, which I contribute to having four older sisters that I had to sit in the car with and they got to pick the music (laughs) while they drove me around. So I like just about anything. I would probably say kind of like alternative rock kind of area, nothing too hard or loud, but alternative rock. I know I surprised you. Was it last week or the week before when I said pink? Pink Pink is definitely, she's definitely one of my favorites for sure. She has such a powerful voice. and, and I know. I do admire her having that voice control when she's swinging up on the the satin, wherever they are. Everything, yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. I think what I, I I think my favorite genre would be sort of traditional old style jazz. Um, you know, uh, Dizzy Gillespie, Miles Davis, um, those those guys. Um, I really love. Uh, I don't know why, but. I, I got turned on to it when I was in college. Uh, I dated this young woman at the time who loved jazz and I, I didn't know that much about it. And then just got hooked on it and probably would prefer that if I had to be on a deserted Island somewhere and I could only take, you know, certain type of music, I would probably take jazz. Uh, so that's another question. here. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what's your favorite word? Um, Oh, I had to think about this one for a minute. I, this is terrible, but I really like the word asinine because (laughs) there are certain times where you want to call someone something like that, but this one is much more acceptable. (laughs) So I really like the word asinine because sometimes it's just the perfect word to describe somebody. (laughs) So if, if you really dislike them, it's more of an asinine hole, right? That, is, is that... <laughs> Something along those lines. Oh, that's a good. That's a good word. That's a good word. Right? I understand the reasoning there. Um, I like the word synchronicity because I, I think when I look back at certain things that have happened, there's been 
certain synchronicities in my life of when I've met people and when I've done things and and other events that have happened, I can now see how, you know, one thing influenced another, you right. know, uh, became more synchronistic. So it's, uh, I love that word. Your uh, least favorite word or a word that you don't like. Um, I have to say it the way that my kids say it for you to understand why I don't like it, but it's fine. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, yes. Yep. Yep. Or, or my husband too saying it's fine. It'll be fine. (laughs) So when you, when you're, um, Mm -hmm. around someone that has anxiety, that is not the word (laughs) that you should say. (laughs) It's fine. It'll be fine. So that's probably one of my least favorite words. In terms of a phrase, my wife, I know that I, I need to maybe hide <laughs> or um, sit down if she says I've been thinking <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I need I need to brace myself for what's coming next um, in terms of a word I think I, I you know I think it's for me I think it's probably uh, you know I, I say curse words all the time but I, I I I really hate people who use racial you know terms and things like that, or who are racist and, and use those kinds of terms. So I hate those terms when I hear them. I don't hear them that often in conversation right. with the people I'm, I'm with, but uh, I just, it just, it just drives me crazy. So, yeah. uh, so I, I would say probably, crawl. yeah, it's just unnecessary. And it um, probably will be the ones I would say were my least favorite. Uh, what sound or noise do you love? Hmm. It might be a little bit bit cliche, but I love the sound of rain. Sound of rain, very calming. Yep. 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 I think when I make my wife laugh, it's probably that's a good one. When she really laughs, not laughing at me, (laughs) but (laughs) laughing with me about something. Yeah. uh, You know, I can make her, you know, laugh and feel good. Uh, what's the sound or noise you hate? Ooh. Mm. I would say I have a hard time when my kids watch shows where there is like a character that intentionally is not using correct speech. Uh. <laughs> right. So there's one. What was the one? I can't remember what the one the name of it was, but there was one where it was just like a bunch of little, um, wonder pets, I think is what it was. Mm. And so there's a bunch of little animals that can talk on there. And one of them could like, could not say there are. And I'm like, ah, if you're having little kids watch this and they're mm-hmm. getting language models from it, make them be able to say there are. <laughs> so <laughs> I guess that's not too surprising, but, and I shouldn't, I don't know. I don't, try to like discriminate against people because I know that it's hard to learn how to speak and speak correctly and that's what I do all day but it's just something about that like when you know that they could have picked a character that or could have had the character not talk that way and they do then that just kind of makes my skin crawl (laughs) oh yeah yeah you know like you go back and you look at some of those older cartoons with the you know speech impediments for all the characters (laughs) just makes you wonder you know 
as a speech pathologist, you look back and why, why, why did we like all that at the time? Yep. Um, for me, I think um, probably in this, what I hate to hear is crying. My wife, um, my kids. And, and I think anytime, like on TV, um, if a, you know, an animal's in distress or something like that, it just, it, you know, it just really, I hate to hear that. And I can't listen to those. I can't listen to Sarah McLaughlin, that, especially that one song because of the, of the animal, you know, the save, save the animals, the stuff that she does. Yes. <laughs> you see those, you know, animals are being rescued and, uh, you know, been in terrible situations. It just drives me crazy. Yeah. My son will actually leave the room if it stays on. He he just gets up and leaves. <laughs> he just can't stand it either. I would agree so, with that. I am a sympathetic crier. So if someone's going to cry, I'm going to cry with them. So I would agree with that. Probably me too. Yeah. Yep. Um, if you uh, didn't choose your current profession, what profession would you like to try? Ooh. When I was younger, I said that my dream job would be a National Geographic photographer. You're so, kidding me. <laughs> I loved, I had like so many cameras. Um, I loved going out and taking pictures. And sometimes I, I remember me and my little sister shared a camera and we'd be on a trip and we would fight over it. Like, I wanted to take a picture of that. No, I wanted to take a picture of that. And then we'd argue when we got home, whose picture was which <laughs> and which one was better. So yeah, a photographer. I've really thought about that when I was younger. It got a little, I don't know. I turned in different directions as I got older, but I always loved photography. So what's happening right now is a synchronicity <laughs> in real time. Because I wanted to do the same thing when I was growing up. And so <laughs> my undergraduate degrees in journalism, uh, specializing in photojournalism. Wow. So my goal in high school was to work for National Geographic. Oh, that's funny. That and crazy? then we both ended up as speech language pathologists. We end up working together in different ways. Yeah. Um, yep. And and what was interesting for me in, in this career being uh, at the A.G. Bell Association, uh, what a lot of people don't realize is that Alexander Graham Bell was the first sort of director or president of National Geographic. Huh. And so there was a, actually an, an office in their building that they preserved that he used. And uh, in one of the first publications they did uh, he actually ran out of copy. He didn't have enough to fill the pages. And so someone had sent him these colorful butterflies, these stamps of butterflies. And he thought, oh, I'll just print these. And from that point on, they became known for, you know, how, you know, their brilliant photography and, and all these other yeah. stuff and how colorful they were. It all goes back to Alexander Graham Bell. <laughs> so another little interesting thing about deafness and and photojournalism and all of that that's really cool i didn't know that about you <laughs> yeah so I, I was going to be a photographer i think uh today i'm asked i told a friend because i had a call, a call with uh when i was working uh, in journalism and and my friend called me um 
not too long ago and he's he was a staff photographer for a while as well and uh, and I he was talking about some things and he said oh do you miss you know doing this work and I said oh I do I said when I'm dreaming I don't dream about speech language pathology I don't dream about the university or teaching I dream about photography I'm I'm back yeah. in that setting I'm back doing those things uh, so it's kind of weird that you kind of go back to those things that you maybe subconsciously really wanted to do or yeah. were on a path to do. Uh, I also love history. I think, you know, I think archaeology is very fascinating. So I would I would love to, like, National Geographic, kind of combine those two and and travel the world and explore and take pictures and write them up and all that stuff. So we're... We're uh, uh, connected on another level. Right. That's funny. That is. Um, so the next and final one is, um, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Mm. I think just a simple welcome home. Because I think that's, if it does exist, that's what I'm looking for forward to the most is just seeing people that I've known and loved. So a welcome home. Yeah, that would be nice. That would be nice. Um, probably for me, it was like wrong door. <laughs> <laughs> You're not on the list. <laughs> You're not on the VIP list. You're going to have to go over here and wait for eternity. Uh, no, I, I think uh, I think you did what you could with what you had when you when you could. Uh, something along those lines. And yeah, like you welcome home and go get some rest. But uh, yeah. Well, great. I, mean, I think we discovered something cool about our relationship of how we've known each other all these years and didn't know, I did, had no idea that was something you wanted to do. So that was yeah. kind of a, a, a cool quiz. Awesome. We're always learning new things. So on the podcast today, we have Ebony Green. And Ebony is uh, a speech language pathologist who has a private practice, uh, Asa speech therapy. And uh, she also has her, another aspect that she's working on contracts to coins, which is more of a consulting uh, side of her business, where she's helping uh, SLPs develop private practices and uh, create contracts or write contracts. And uh, it's going to be exciting to talk to her because a lot of, you know, telepractitioners out there uh, are in the, you know, Full contractors or independent yep. contractors and working like just like you are. Yep. Uh, like you're doing. And so I think she'll have a lot of valuable information to share. Yeah. We're excited. Hi, it's Todd Houston. I just wanted to remind you about our 50th episode event which will actually be next week, Wednesday, May 5th at 6 o'clock p.m. Eastern. Kim and I will be hosting a panel of some of our outstanding former guests, Stacy Pfaff, Stacy Krause, Amanda Blackwell, and Amy Graham. 
We'll be talking about telepractice and, and doing some other fun things too. So we'll be streaming this event to our newly formed Telepractice Today Facebook group. So if you haven't joined the group, you want to do that quickly so that you can be a part of this live event and ask some questions of our panel uh, or, of, or of me or Kim. We'd love to see you participating in this event. So next Wednesday, May 5th, 6 o'clock Eastern, be there. Now, back to the interview. So, Ebony, welcome to the podcast. Can you share a little bit more about your background? Sure, I'm happy to be here. So, I am a speech-language pathologist in the Phoenix area. I own a private practice, and uh, we specialize in home health. We have a clinic, and we also do school contracts. The name of my practice is Casa Speech Therapy. And we serve about 150 patients, um, both in-home and in our clinic. And we serve about nine schools uh, with a caseload total of about 300 students. Wow. And so before you got to your private practice, you had a you know, variety of experience uh, experiences. Is that right? Yes, yes. Um, so I have a background in education. I was a teacher before I became a speech language pathologist and I taught uh, second grade and third grade. And then I actually transitioned to high school after that. And it really um, was interesting to me to sit in IEP meetings when I was a teacher and to kind of see how the team all worked together to help support the students who needed that individualized um, education. And so I, um, I became interested in learning more about um, how I could do something like that. And um, through several conversations with the speech language pathologist at the school where I worked, um, I decided to go ahead and pursue um, becoming a speech language pathologist assistant. And I um, took some leveling courses um, while I pursued my SLPA certificate so that I could eventually go into graduate school and uh, got into grad school and became an SLP. Um, it was very, it was, it was a nice um, opportunity to work as an SLPA while I also earned my degree to become an SLP because I earned, I got so much experience, um, you know, and, and a lot of what we do is uh, even though we learn a lot in school, it's really on the job training. So um, I feel very fortunate that I was able to get that experience as an SLPA and then transition to uh, becoming an SLP. And right after that, opened up my private practice. You know, it's, it's interesting uh, being in academia. I've, I've uh, heard, well, we've had quite a few students over the years. I've, I've worked with quite a few students over the years who started off in education and for different reasons ended up in speech language pathology. Um, I recall a couple of couple of students re more recently who did their student teaching and realized I don't want to be a teacher and have to manage all these all these kids <laughs> I just want to work one-on-one -on -one or so and so they you know look around and, and speech language pathology is there and so that's what they move into yeah and for me it was um it was something similar you know that motivated me to um, pursue speech I did like that individualized um instruction that you could give the student um, also, you know, I taught in, a, in an underserved area. So 
um, there were a ton of, of students who needed additional help. You know, I was the uh, third grade teacher with students who couldn't read yet in my class. And so um, I always felt like there was something more that I could be doing to help those students, especially those that were on IEPs. And so that's kind of what motivated me is really to provide that um, individual one-on-one -on -one attention with the students. Um, and then I'm also very passionate about um, speech and language. So mm -hmm. um, I, I'm also a bilingual SLP um, and I taught, most of the students that I taught were um, were English language learners. So um, the speech and language part, you know, was, was uh, what sold me on this profession as well. Mm -hmm. But what a great what a great foundation in terms of knowledge foundation to have that educational component to then move into speech language pathology. That's really, really great. So I'm so interested in the fact that um, you started your private practice right after graduating. And I know that you had some experience with education in general before going through grad school. Um, but I'm just how how did you have like the confidence and the um, feeling like you knew enough and knew it all to be able to do that? Because I'm still not <laughs> feeling like I know enough to be able to do that. On yeah, something. I know. <laughs> Yes, and I and I totally get it because I have those days as well. But um, you know, it really for me was um, being a teacher. Honestly, I felt like I was running a business. You know, mm -hmm. I had to manage the personalities of thirty kids. Um, I had to. I was responsible for all of their well-being. Um, so that in itself was like to me, um, a, an experience in management like no other. Um, and then when I moved up to high school, even more so, because not only was I um, managing, you know, my classroom, but I was also being critiqued daily. Um, you know, my high school students, if you've ever worked with high schoolers, they don't just let things slide. You come to school and you look tired, they're going to tell you, oh, you look tired today, <laughs> you know? Um, and so a lot of the management of um, my classroom and being a teacher really gave me the confidence to be like, if I can teach, you know, if I can convince these high school students to do their homework and, you know, not play video games and pass my class in Spanish of all <laughs> courses, you know, it's like the one course that nobody really really wants to take that they have to to graduate um then i can certainly you know be an effective boss and manage a team um so that was kind of what helped me with just feeling confident with um leading others and then as far as you know taking the risk of um going into something that i've never done before because you know we don't learn about business in graduate school um it really was surrounding myself with um, mentors and people that were able to um, coach me and guide me on how to do this um, without making the mistakes that they made, you know, and, and um, I, I still did make mistakes, but um, overall I felt very um, supported by my network. And those people were people that had uh, supervised me previously or that currently have their own practices and are very successful. So I made it, um, my, I made an effort to keep relationships with former supervisors and bosses because I wanted to have the opportunity to reach out to them, um, when I did start my practice. And thankfully all of them were very supportive. You know, I know sometimes it can be kind of tricky because you don't want to, um, feel like, you know, now you're their competition, so you can't, um, get help from them. But 
people who are really invested in you and in and, and your success, you know, they will, um, they won't care about the fact that you're now opening your own practice and maybe you are the competition, but you know, you're also there to help each other. So, um, so the combination of my past experience in the classroom and, um, and having those mentors to help me with becoming uh, a good CEO and, and boss of um, my company is what helped me have that confidence. Great. I like so much of what you said in there. If you can teach high school, you can do anything. Oh, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> this is, this is my first year. This is my first year having like a full caseload. I had, I would have some kids there here and there that were in high school, but this is my first year having a full caseload of high school. And I'm like, oh, this is a whole different ball game than the little kids I've been seeing. And it is that they're like yes. much less forgiving. They don't really like me. I don't have that going <laughs> for me. <laughs> you know, when you work with a five-year-old, they're inherently like, oh yeah, I'm so excited. Exactly. But no, no. Yeah. Yep. And I like that idea of, you know, really when we think about it, we're going to never run out of kids to work with. So I think, you know, not seeing people as your competition is like, there's no way that I could see all the kids that need to be seen. So if you come online and I can funnel kids towards you too, yes. then that, I think that's a good relationship to have. I agree. Yeah. I, I still get referrals from, um, again, former supervisors and people that I used mm-hmm. to work with previously. So there's, there's plenty of kids to go around and at the end of the day, right. We all just want to help all the kids. Yeah. Right. And that's sort of been all my philosophy for many years when I'm teaching and looking at graduate students. Um, this idea of colleagueship is that these are, these are people that are going to be your colleagues, you know, very, in a very short time. And so I never understood those, you know, those professors or, or clinical instructors who were always sort of, I'm up here and you're down here and I'm the one with experience and you're just a student. And I never got that. I never understood that because these are the people that you want to get referrals from, that you want to do other projects with, like this, Kim, right? Um, having a podcast together <laughs> someday. Uh, so it's it's like, why do you, why do you mistreat and, and look not look at? These these young people that are going through this process as colleagues, you know, I don't, you know, you need to change that perspective. So I like the idea of being able to have those mentors and and not seeing it as competition or not seeing it as a waste of time or I've already taught you, you know, get out of my hair kind of thing, you know, <laughs> go on uh, and and really see it as colleagueship and and how these people are really just an ongoing relationship and and it's. And that's the way it really should be seen, I think. No, yeah, I agree. I I believe in um, co-mentorship as well. You know, it's funny because now all of my former supervisors that I still keep in contact with, they'll often reach out to me for business advice, you know, and um, what do you think I should do about um, this situation or that situation? And so, um, you know, like you said, it's it's about the um, collaboration right over the competition. That's right. So what right. it comes down to. So telepractice for me <laughs> um, came out of nowhere. I was um, I had just started my practice and really focusing on um, building up our clientele in home health. 
And I had um, a couple of therapists that I had just hired and really working hard again at, um, at getting our name out in the community and getting those home health referrals. And a colleague of mine from graduate school um, posted in our Facebook group for, um, for our graduating cohort about an opportunity to work for her district. Um, it's a rural district in Arizona and they were desperate for SLPs. And so nobody responded and I checked back a few days later, still no responses. So I, I mentioned, you know, the possibility of being able to provide services via teletherapy. And <laughs> I didn't really think that they were going to um, be interested in that because this was before COVID when teletherapy was not the thing to do, right? It was kind of the, the foreign thing that you heard about maybe at a conference and, you know, never really met anyone that actually does teletherapy. Um, and so I just posted threw it out there, you know, mainly because I felt bad that it was September and they still didn't have an SLP. And um, she responded and said, okay, great. I'm going to reach out to the special education director. And then I found myself a week and a half later signing a contract <laughs> with this district to provide teletherapy to 75 students. And it was like, whoa, this happened really quickly. Um, I've never done teletherapy before, but I'm sure I can figure this out. <laughs> and so um, I reached out to um, one of my mentors, asked if they knew anything about teletherapy. And they said, well, I've never done teletherapy before, but you just want to make sure you know what the rules are in your state. So I went to my state website, looked up what the rules were to provide teletherapy. And the only thing I saw was that um, for supervision, the SLPA had to be supervised in the same room as the SLP. So this is pre-COVID and that's that was the rule. You had to be in the same room during supervision, but an SLPA could provide teletherapy as could an SLP. Um, there were no restrictions on that. So I then looked up some activities and um, we used my platform uh, that I use for my clinic for the EMR, the EMR that we use had a teletherapy component. So I just went straight through that EMR to make sure it was HIPAA compliant. And we started doing teletherapy. Um, and here we are uh, two years in still providing teletherapy to that same district, but now we service seven of their schools. So um <laughs> it was it was definitely something that um one of those moments where I just kind of jumped in, didn't really know, you know, what was gonna come of it. But um, you know, I, I'm very glad that I did because so many kids um in that area, they don't have access to they didn't have access to services. There's just not a lot of SLPs um in, in this rural area and um they've utilized teletherapy before. So this wasn't new to the school, which was good. Um, and they were very accepting of it. I, I was kind of nervous that they were going to be like, this isn't real speech therapy, you know, but they were familiar with, with how teletherapy worked, which helped a lot. So that's where we are today um, with our teletherapy um, services. And it, it works really well for us because um, the therapist got to really see what teletherapy was like before the pandemic and everyone started, you know, trying to learn teletherapy in a day. So that was nice too. Uh, doing telepractice, um, 
what have been what have been some of the big uh, sort of aha <laughs> moments or big uh, surprises along the way, and and what have been the challenges you think? Okay, so when providing teletherapy, especially in a school setting, it all boils down to having a good team. You have to have support from the district. Um, And that doesn't just mean, you know, that they say, okay, you can provide teletherapy. It means that they have to have the technology. They have to have the staff to help out because, you know, when you're doing an evaluation, for example, you need a helper. You need someone there that's going to assist with anything that could go wrong during that teletherapy evaluation. Um, You need someone that's going to be able to assist with, um, you know, if you didn't hear what the kids said, they can tell you or that sort of thing. So you need, um, you need the district to um, support you. And that's been the biggest thing that I've, I've learned. Thankfully, the district that we work with is very supportive. They do have personnel that help out specifically for the services that we provide. And that is what these, uh, what these support people do is they get students for us. They sit down with them during their therapy sessions. They log on to the Zoom meeting for the student um, and they sit there in case there's any um, technology issues or if we have any questions um, that they can help us with. So um, having that support really makes it a smooth and seamless process. Otherwise it can get a bit, um, it can get a bit difficult just because there's so many moving parts when you're providing teletherapy and you're not there in person. Yeah. I was just going to say I've had, um, I've probably worked with at least four or five different districts in doing um, teletherapy and at different schools too within the district. And that does make such a huge difference. I had one district that I would, I am just seeing the kids that have chosen at home learning right now. And I had a service coordinator that didn't realize that I didn't live in the same state as them. <laughs> so when I said like, oh, they've returned to school now, so they'll get services from their, the SLP at the school. She's like, that's not you. You don't live here. And I'm like, no, no. <laughs> and just that, you know, that I think the awareness of, um, the whole staff of like, this is how it works. This is who this person is with, if they call because they can't find their student or they call because they can't find where the IEP meeting is. This is who that, this is how that's going to work. So uh, it makes a huge difference. And there's districts that I have chosen not to go back to because of the experience that I've had with them. So I think, yeah, setting that up from the get go. So that goes well, um, makes a huge difference. And have you Mm-hmm. Have you had any uh, challenges with the parents or have yes, most absolutely. Been accepting of telepractice with their children? For the most part, the parents have been uh, very accepting. However, we've had some uh, difficult moments. You know, one of the things that I now require my therapist to do is to have a welcome letter, to create a welcome letter to introduce themselves to the parent and send that home before we even start providing services because sometimes parents don't even know who the speech therapist that's working with their student is. Um, but when the pandemic hit, we had to change our model a little bit because prior to COVID, we were providing services to the students at school. And that was much easier to navigate because there was staff there, there was a schedule that was consistent and easy to follow. When the students transitioned to being at home, that was a challenge, right? And so we had to really um, make sure that the parents were involved and that they knew what 
being what their student was going to be doing in speech with us and that they needed to be at the computer, that they needed to um, sign on, you know, before their session started. And so everything for us was having consistent communication with the family um, and kind of setting those expectations with them and letting them know what to expect beforehand. Setting those expectations always important. Yes. Keeping everyone on the same page. So as you've uh, done your, your private practice and incorporated telepractice, you've now launched a new venture, being the businesswoman that you are, an entrepreneur, entrepreneur um, contracts to coins. So let's, let's talk about this, this aspect of what you're doing. How did, how did this idea sort of uh, get started? How did that start? So during the pandemic, um, I noticed that a lot of SLPs who were new to private practice were struggling because there just weren't enough referrals at that time. People kind of put their services on hold or they stopped coming into speech. And, you know, it just wasn't as, as easy to get a client as it was before the pandemic. So some people were having to shut down their practices. Um, Others were, you know, having to delay starting their private practices. And so what came to my mind is, you know, I thought about, wow, I'm only a year and a half into owning my business, but this pandemic is not really affecting my business as much because I have contracts with schools. And so these contracts are providing consistent revenue they're providing the opportunity for us to continue servicing the students because we've already been doing teletherapy. And so there hasn't really been a change in the number of students that we're serving. Um, and I thought, wouldn't it be nice if other SLPs could learn how to contract their services to school districts, whether it be for teletherapy services or in person, so that they can also have the extra revenue in their, in their business. And so they can fill the need because there's a need for us, you know, to provide these services. So I started thinking about a way to teach other SLPs this information. And, and the information is how, how do you get a contract? Right. Um, I was fortunate, like I said, to have um, gotten a contract through a relationship that I had, but in order for me to have gotten up to the number of schools that I have now, I had to go through a whole bidding process. I had to go through a formal bidding process because there's only a certain amount of funds that the district can pay you without going through a formal bid. So I went through that whole formal bidding process and it was very overwhelming and intimidating at first to do this because mm-hmm. it's it's a government contract, right? Uh, so there are a lot of factors involved and lots of things that you have to pay close attention to and lots of fine print. And so I wanted to teach other SLPs how to go through this process so that they can secure their own contracts um, and provide the services either via teletherapy or in person, like I said, and just have that stability and that, um, and, and the flexibility, you know, uh, for not just themselves, but for their therapists. A lot of my therapists, they were able to continue earning the same paycheck they were earning before COVID because we had a contract in place and they needed 
to be the biggest need of their services. Oops, sorry. Um, so um, that's how Contracts to Coins came about. I, I started uh, an online course for speech pathologists to learn how to get contracts with districts and how to market themselves and how to go through the bidding process. Um, it's been about a year since I started teaching that class and I've helped about 50 SLPs learn about the process. Um, mm-hmm. About 10 have actually gotten contracts and um, you know, I'm now to the point where I'm starting to realize that people need this type of, they need to learn more about the business side of, um, of our field, right? They need to learn more about how to be um, a business owner, how to think like a business owner and not just a clinician. So for the future, I'm looking at adding more um, classes to what I'm currently offering. I want to offer classes on um, everything related to business, not just school contracts, because while that is important to know, I get a lot of inquiries about, can you just help me learn how to, um, you know, be profitable without a contractor? Like, how do I um, market myself? How do I use social media to market my business? So um, there's a lot, I think, that um, can be learned. And I haven't been in business that long, but um, I've I think that a lot of what I um, have learned in the short time has helped me and it can really help other people um, go a long way in their business. Um, So that's why I started. It really was just to educate others. And with my background in teaching, you know, that's still one of the passions that I have is to teach others. So it was the perfect opportunity for me to um, get back into um, that, um, I won't say hobby, but um, to get back into you know mm-hmm. the thing that one of my true passions um, besides speech pathology. So, what do you see as a advantage over being um, contracting with a school rather than being a school employee for SLPs? One of the advantages of contracting with the school um, is that you get to set your own hours. And you get to set your own rate of pay. So one of the biggest complaints we often hear about in our field when it comes to working in a school or for a district is that um, the pay isn't as high as in other settings, right? So compared to um, a home health setting or compared to working at a skilled nursing facility, schools typically pay less. Um, We also hear a lot of complaints about the workload, right? And so as a contractor, you can kind of decide how you want to spread out that workload. I have a caseload right now of 75 students that I serve at a school, but I have spread that caseload out between myself and two assistants, right? If I worked for the district, they might not have it in their budget or they might not feel like it would be necessary because they don't really know a lot about what we do. Um, they, they might not feel that it's necessary to have those two assistants. They might feel like, oh, you know, it's just paperwork and, mm-hmm. and seeing kids for their services. So one person can handle that. In reality, we know that it's really a two or three person job. So that's um, kind of the benefit is having a little bit more flexibility um, in how you 
um, how you divide your work. You know, if you want to do it all yourself and you can do it all yourself, or if you want to have a couple of assistants help you, then you can do that. And, um, you know, not have to be, um, not have to worry as much about, you know, having that burden all on yourself. Um, and then pay, you know, if you want to, um, make a higher salary in the school district, it's a little bit harder to convince them to pay you more. Um, you know, I know some schools will give you more if you have more, um, education, but typically you're on a teacher's, um, schedule or a little bit higher. Whereas as a contractor, you set your rate. So you can, you can set a rate that is commensurate with home health. If you want to make as much as a home health care provider and the district agrees to pay you that much. Um, so those are the, the two key benefits that I find um, with being a contractor. Right. And I see that too. Um, some of those same benefits with like, because uh, I, right now I go through a third party company and I contract with them and they contract with the schools. So I get some of the benefits of being a contract employee and like the flexible schedule. But I think one of the main um, complaints that I've seen from people that are making the switch and thinking about going with a teletherapy company is the difference in pay. And so I think when you, you've talked about your uh, contracting directly with the schools, then you can kind of bump that pay up a little bit. And I can see pros and cons too, because there is a lot of support in the companies that I've gone with that have provided telepractice and they have a lot of infrastructure in them and the billing's all there. So it's, it's a, you know, it's a thing that you want to balance. Do you want to take on all of the liability and all of the responsibility of having all of those things and get paid more, or do you want to get paid a little bit less and have more support? So I think everyone has the options to choose what fits best for them. And that sounds like you are teaching them how to make that jump if they want to. Yes. Yeah. And and the key is, you know, um, once you decide you don't want to work for the district anymore, it could be for a variety of reasons. For me, it was the pay. It was the, um, the hours, you know, um, I want SLPs to feel empowered because you already have the skills to do yep. the job. All the all the you know time that you've been working in the schools for the district or for another company, those are the same skills you're going to use when you contract your services out and you do it under your own company. So, um, the course is is designed to help SLPs learn the process, but also to understand that they already have the skills to do the job. Awesome. They just need a little guidance and how to put it all together, right? Yeah, I. I I wish that we had uh, room in the curricula to have more business courses. Uh, and I think the challenge, you know, we talk about this as faculty all the time. You know, we see all these different needs sort of outside the clinical side of things like business and, and other areas that we wish we had some electives or, or you know, standard courses that we would offer. Um, but I think with our scope of practice being so wide right now, it's going to be, you know, I, I think we're going to have to go to a three-year clinical doctorate at some point because we keep expanding. And there's no way to cram everything in in two years and uh, for a master's uh, degree program. So if we could do a clinical doctorate, then we could have, you know, the flexibility having courses on, you know, practice management and building uh, your your private practice and, and business and all of that. 
uh, that could be very exciting. So we have to we have to change the world. We have to change yeah. how we're how <laughs> how we're educating future SLPs. Yes, and they've already started doing it. I know in other um, similar professions. Um, so yeah, that that to me mm-hmm. would be exciting actually to be able to learn um, to have the third year just to learn about you know like you said business and other skills um, that could help us in our journey because there's so much potential for where we can end up. You know, we, we have um, such a wide knowledge base. So um, I would be totally for that. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. I think one on like just working with other professionals too, like that's been one of the biggest like things they didn't teach you in grad school has been like, the IEP process oh, and, yeah, you know, working with other, other, other special educators and educating other special educators on what you do as an SLP, I think is a big area that I was like, hmm, no one ever told me how to right. do this. Yeah. Right. Well, Ebony, I mentioned earlier that you're going to sort of help us launch a new segment uh, for the podcast. And so this is a little activity that we're just going to ask you some questions and it, we, I want you to just whatever f- comes to mind, this answer. Okay. All right. Is that all right? Uh, so this is uh, based on, as we talk about sort of the Prout's, uh, Prout's uh, questionnaire that he had. And if, again, if anyone saw, you know, inside the actor studio, they have those questions for the actor. So this is based on that. So, okay, here goes. Most used app on your phone. What's the most used app on your phone? The most used app on my phone has to be Canva. And Canva is a marketing um, graphic design app. Mm -hmm. It's very useful if you own a small business because you can create very professional graphics um, for free or for a very small fee. I think I pay like $12 a month. And, And you're pointing to your background, which was made. In Canva, so <laughs> oh, Canva. yeah, so Both. it's one of the best apps out there for sure. I I agree. We have a a pro account. <laughs> um, what was the last TV series you streamed? So I just started watching a series called Them on um, on Prime. Um, it's a little, it's kind of a horror slash. Um, I think they call it like social horror film or something like that, where it has to do with a yeah. lot of um, things that are going on, you know, in society um, or that have, you know, historically happened. Um, and so my husband and I have recently started watching that. Um, but, you know, you, you kind of have to be in the right mood to watch those kinds of shows because it can, there are some parts that are really sad. So um, we haven't finished it yet, um, but normally we would binge, any good show that we, it's just one of those shows where we can't really binge because there's a lot to unpack as you watch it. Sure. Sure. Uh, your favorite, uh, type of music. Uh, my favorite type of music is hip hop. Um, I like to listen to songs that are very motivating. So, um, you know, there's uh, an artist, uh, from Houston named, um, Megan the stallion. She has, um, her mm-hmm. her songs are, um, I think, very empowering to women. I know that 
the lyrics are sometimes, if you've ever listened to her songs, they can be, you know, a bit much, but uh, her whole purpose is really to just um, empower women. And um, I like, you know, that she also is, she's from Houston. I'm originally from Texas. So yeah, I got to support a, a fellow Texan and, um, and her songs have really good, like, if you like to dance, definitely has the beat for that as well. <laughs> Great. Um, what's your favorite word? Mm. So I recently joined um, a public speaking club called Toastmasters. And every mm -hmm. meeting, there's a word that we have to use in our speeches. And um, I've always found that every word that we learn to like stick in my head, even though I never use those words regularly in my speech. So the last one I think was Stranopius. <laughs> and that was, I won't say it's my, that's the first word that came to my head. So I'm just going to say, I'm going to go with Stranopius. <laughs> okay. What's your least favorite word? Uh, um, I'm going to say, I'm going to say no is my least favorite word. <laughs> um, but I have to from age two on from right? age two on exactly <laughs> but I also have to say that hearing the word no for, when it's something that I feel like I can do or I can get or I should get that actually helps me it motivates me so it should probably be my favorite word because I've heard no a lot and that has motivated me and pushed me to achieve even more, but it's still not a word I, I prefer to hear. <laughs> I understand. What sound or noise do you love? Um, I really, aside from music. Yes. I really like the sound of the ocean. Okay. Good. What sound or noise do you hate? Um, I hate this. I hate humming. Ever since I was a teacher, <laughs> humming was just the one thing that was, it was worse than nails on the chalkboard for me. So yeah, kids <laughs> would get detention all the time because they would just, they knew it, but it, it annoyed me and they would still do it <laughs> at the high school level. It was, that was the one thing that, yeah, that would get you a detention really quick. <laughs> Good. Uh, just two more. Uh, what profession other than what you would, what you are doing now, would you attempt if you could? I think I would go back into teaching. Um, I would like to teach at maybe the university level um, or, mm -hmm. or, you know, at a community college or something um, where I can teach professionals or, you know, students that are wanting to um, become SLPs. Uh, some of the things that I've learned, you know, in private practice, that's why I said, if we were to do that three-year um, path for um, for our students, then that would be very nice because, you know, courses like business would be something I would love to teach. Um, so yeah, I would definitely go back to being an educator. Okay, last question. And this is uh, actually goes back, uh, one of those questions in the original version of these. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? So I am a Christian. So to me, you know, I think about 
what mm-hmm. God would say if I were once I once I arrived in heaven mm-hmm. um, a lot, and that would be you know job well done, my good and faithful servant. That those are the words I'd want to hear. Well. Ebony, it's been a, a real delight for us to have you uh, join us, and I hope uh, these questions weren't too bad <laughs> or too much of a, a stress for you. Uh, you were a, a real champ, so we really appreciate you doing that, and um, we wish you nothing but continued success in all that you're doing. Yeah, it's just amazing. Very nice. Yeah, well, thank you guys so much for this opportunity. I'm excited to listen to some of the other episodes um, on this podcast, and um it was a pleasure to share my story. Hopefully I'll I'll get to um you know meet some of the the listeners who want to learn more about private practice or who want to maybe go to school contract one day. Yeah, and where do they find you if they want to talk to you about that? So they can find me on Instagram under um SLP Contracts Queen. So that's at SLP Contracts Queen. And if you want to follow my um my private practice, it's at Casa speech underscore ot underscore az awesome thank you again thank you that was ebony green of casa speech therapy and contracts to coins so check out some of the materials and her website and if you want to reach out please do i'm sure she'll be glad to talk to you about what she's doing or to help you with those contracts, uh, like she mentioned. And I also wanted to mention our 50th episode, which will be next week, May 5th, Wednesday, May 5th, at 6 p.m. Eastern. Join us in our newly formed Telepractice Today Facebook group. We'll be streaming live to the group, so join the group now so that you can be ready to participate in this wonderful event that we have planned. We'll have a great panel of some of our previous guests, and we want you to be there and participate as much as you can. And with that, thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Be safe and be kind. This has been a production of the 3C Digital Media Network. 